Thank you for traveling with Amex Platinum. To your right, you'll see Oceanside Relaxation at a fine hotel and resort property. When booked through Amex Travel, you can enjoy complimentary breakfast for 2 and 4 p.m. late checkout. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbionica is your solution to great-tasting, all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or toxins. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more... Right now, you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. The Book of Joe podcast is a production of iHeartRadio. Hey there, welcome back to the most interesting baseball podcast on the planet. It's the Book of Joe with me, Tom Verducci, and Joe Madden. And of course, it's the time of year where we talk a lot about rumors and acquisitions. So, Joe Madden, I have to first ask you about a rumor I'm trying to confirm about an acquisition on your part. Uh, I have heard that you purchased a fire station. Is this true? <laughs> it is true. I uh, purchased a firehouse in Wilkes-Barre to store my cars. Um, I was looking for a garage here in Hazleton. Couldn't find anything really appropriate. So I expanded the search engine and ended up with a 1899 firehouse in Wilkes-Barre. Uh, it'll easily hold eight or nine cars, but it's, uh, it's, in, it's in wonderful shape upstairs with the old captain's room, the old uh, lieutenant's room. Actually, the... Uh, the uh, locker room and another room way upstairs and uh, the roof uh, top actually is the roof's in great shape. You go up to the actual rooftop where the siren is. Um, yeah, pretty special. I'm going to actually eventually do the podcast out of there. We get it all settled down. Should be able to close by the end of next month. Uh, 1899. It's on the registry for uh, historic buildings in Pennsylvania. It's pretty cool. That is so Joe Madden. And please, please, Joe, tell me there is one of those brass poles that you can slide down from the second story down to the garage floor. How about two of them? Uh, each corner, like when uh, there's two, they're not active right now. I just got to open up the trap doors underneath, cut the carpet out a little bit, and then they become active again, which they will. Best deadline acquisition this year. A fire station. <laughs> well, I promised you this is the most interesting podcast on the planet. And uh, to prove it, we've got a very interesting guest. It's Scott Bradley. You might know him from his days as a catcher of the big leagues, but also 25 years as the head baseball coach at Princeton University. Scott, welcome to the podcast. And um, I would think at this time of year, maybe I would be catching you at the Jersey Shore or something. Where, how you been? The Jersey Shore for a college coach, it's uh, it's busy time for us. I, I've watched more uh, summer league travel baseball over the course of the last uh, six weeks than you could ever possibly imagine. Wow. Hey, before we get to uh, – I have a lot of questions. I'm sure Joe does too about college baseball. Um, but I got to start with deadline acquisition. I totally missed this. Uh, you were actually – a trade acquisition. It was your last year in the big leagues, July of 1992 traded from the New York, from the uh, Cincinnati Reds to the New York Mets. Um, you've been traded. You were traded three times, but what was that one like, Scott? I don't even remember that one. I'm sure you must. Well, you didn't remember it because it was a, it was a minor league deal. 
the Reds didn't need me anymore. Uh, Clint Hurdle was managing the uh, the Tidewater Tides at the time, and they were extremely thin and had lost, uh, I think, all their catchers at that point. Um, so I had a chance to go play for Clint for the last two months of the season, um, but all in Tidewater. Never had anything to do with uh, with the big league team. So I got to ask you, at that point, are you starting to think about a career in coaching? At that point, uh, I think I had already started to think about a career in coaching. Um, some of the, the pro teams that I was with had talked to me about the following year, um, about going into coaching, going into managing. Um, it just so worked out that uh, in the offseason, um, I had a chance to, um, uh, to, to go to spring training um, with the Mets at that point. Jeff Torborg wanted to be able to have three catchers. So I went to uh, spring training with the Mets with the idea that I had one last chance to make the team as a kind of a super utility player at a time when it wasn't cool to be a utility player. Uh, it meant that you weren't good enough to play in any one spot. Um, went to spring training with the Mets. That was the, uh, the the wacky spring training with, you know, the Vince Coleman and the Brett Saberhagen and the bleach and all the, the, the craziness going on. And um, I was released at the end of spring training. Uh, and at that point, um, went home, wasn't sure what I was going to do. And then the, uh, the, actually the Braves picked me up, uh, had a chance to play in, uh, back to double a. So I was sort of going in reverse order, um, back down the chain. And, um, at that point I started thinking about, all right, I need to decide what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to stay in baseball and some coaching opportunities came up at the end of that year. Just want to backtrack there a little bit. You talked about you're busy right now. Uh, out there recruiting. Uh, for me, as a collegian player, uh, summer ball was my favorite time of the year. I really enjoyed the summer leagues. I played in the Atlantic Collegian Baseball League and eventually got signed because I ended up in Boulder, Colorado, playing for the Boulder Collegians. Otherwise, I don't know what it would have happened. I wanted to play in the Cape Cod League. I never got a chance. I almost begged them to go up there. They wouldn't take me. Uh, but I'm curious, like right now, who or what are the, the best, considered the best summer league teams right now? Where's Where's your main recruiting uh, playground right now? Is it just anywhere? Is Alaska still pertinent? I'm just curious because I don't even know uh, what's going on in Summer League baseball for collegians, which I used to absolutely love. Yeah, well, you know, Summer League for our players, um, the Cape is still the the, the, the cream of the crop. Okay. Uh, everybody wants a chance to go to the Cape. It's interesting how the MLB draft and the timing of everything has really impacted uh, all the collegiate leagues. So there's a, a big turnover in the Cape. Their rosters are, are big numbers right now. Uh, they're allowed to bring in a lot of players on what they call temp contracts. Uh, the transactions in the Cape Cod League is just, it's, it's crazy, uh, the number of transactions that, that, that there are. There are way more summer leagues now, Joe, than when, you know, you're a little bit older than me, but way more summer leagues like you mentioned, Alaska used to be a terrific, terrific league. All the West Coast kids, for the most part, would stay in Alaska, and all the East Coast kids would, would go back to the Cape. Now the Cape is where everybody wants to be. Uh, one of the really interesting leagues uh, is, is out is the, the, the North Woods League. It's run like a, a minor league system. They play 75 or 76 games. It's all geared on you know, uh, six, seven-day road trips, three-game series, four-game series. Uh, it's almost too much. I know a lot of the Power 5 schools will let their kids go up there for maybe half a season, but then they want them to come home because they just think it, it's too much baseball, which I know you and I probably it, – it's a hard time fathom that there's anything right. too much baseball for a, a college player to have in the summer. Who subsidizes that? How did they subsidize that league where they're playing almost every day? You know, the Northwoods League, it's all, uh, they have owners. Really? So the owners run it. They run it like uh, independent minor league team franchises, um, ticket sales. Um, it's got to be fun. It's got to be fun for the players, though, right? I mean, it's like, it's a great experience. It is. But you know what, Joe? The players are different these days. It, it's, it's interesting how many of them want downtime and how many of them want to go to their private pitching instructors right. and how many right. of them want to go to driveline and how many of them you know, want to go train up at Cressy. It, it's really interesting that the kids right now that from my experience, so many of them would rather tr train 
than play or they try to find a combination of it. Right. And I think it's really sad because there's nothing like these summer leagues and how much it impacts your college career after that. And just growing up in general, I mean, just growing up, living on your own like that, away from home, possibly for the very, like really away from home for the first time. Uh, and then the other part I always uh, enjoyed about it was the competition itself. That's when I found that I can play against people from California, Colorado, or uh, Texas, Oklahoma, because being from a small town in Pennsylvania, I didn't know. You know, I was playing for the Scranton Red Sox in the summer. So I don't think these ancillary components aren't spoken about enough. It's not just about playing who you're playing against and who you're competing against. And whereas before you might have been like, you know, the better guy in that area. Now you get to this more difficult part where everybody's involved. Uh, that, that was my takeaway. When I got to play with Boulder uh, more than anything, I finally realized I can play against the better collegiate guys in the country. And that was really important to me. Uh, just jump moving along, though, like with all this driveline stuff and all these um, other versions of or methods of teaching, uh, do you find that being conflicting with your own group when you get back to Princeton? When you get a guy that you've been working with with a certain thing, all of a sudden they get back there and you've been working with his guru and all of a sudden things change a bit. Does that, does that bother some? Do you talk about that in advance with them? Do you stay in touch with them? How do you avoid the, the conflict of instruction sometimes? Yeah, you know, it's it's a great point, and it's something uh, in, in today's sort of baseball where you can't ignore it and you right. can't, you know, dictate it. So the only way to really have success is to work with them. Mm-hmm. So uh, I talk to all my players before they're going to go. Uh, we make sure that there's communication between us, whether it's myself or my pitching coach, uh, and these facilities. You know, there's a lot of good at these facilities, but we want to make sure that we're all on the same page. When they come back, I want to know what they've been doing. I want to know the terminology uh, that's been used. Uh, a few years ago, uh, I had a different pitching coach at the time, but Mike Russo, we actually sent him out to driveline because we had three or four players that, you know, on their own were going to go out there. And we sent Mike out to driveline for a week just so he could see exactly what they were doing so that we could all be on the same page. But you really have a, a chance to alienate yourself and your program if you just tell the kids, no, you cannot go to driveline or you cannot go to, you know, Cressy or you cannot have, you know, your own your own hitting instructor. Right, right. I just want to make sure that there's communication between all of us. All we want is that the players have success. So uh, we just need to know how to communicate, uh, you know, the, the same way. When it comes down to some like showcases, are they still a big part of the the uh, scouting um, component within within your, uh, the collegiate structure also professionally, where do they bring kids to certain spots? Do kids pay to go to certain groups? I mean, I'm, I'm so anti-travel teams where kids pay money to be on teams and travel. I, I'd much prefer them play for Hazleton or West Hazleton or try to win for Tamaqua, but all of a sudden they're, they become mercenaries at a very young age. Is the showcase games, and uh, are that still a big part of this whole situation? Um, like bigger, big, big, it's, it's bigger than ever, Joe. Really? Um, oh. it's bigger than ever. And it starts at eight, nine, 10 years old mm. that, that these kids are on these travel teams and on the travel circuits and going to these showcases where kids are being, are being rated nationally as eight, nine and, and 10 year olds. Um, it's, and again, this for the high school and I, you know, I had, you know, two of my three kids, you know, played college baseball and some professional baseball and, you know, Tom with, you know, with his son, the, the same way in that with as much as sort of, we love the American Legion and the, the team, the town teams and mm-hmm. where games really mattered. This is just what we have today. And you have to try to make the, the best of it. Uh, the college coaches are going down. Uh, there's a huge tournament in going on in in, in Atlanta now. Uh, over 400 teams. Uh, the the college coaches that are there are traveling hundreds of miles every day to get to fields within a 30 or 40 mile radius of of Atlanta, and it's just the way it is. I personally don't believe it's the way to to develop players. It's one game after another. It's very little practice. Yeah. Uh, the games really don't matter. It's like, okay, everybody, we lost this game here today. Let's now pack up our stuff and go over to field seven where we're now going to play, you know, another game. Um, You have not only DHs, you have XHs and RHs and all kinds. They usually hit 12 and 13-man lineups, you know, uh, pitchers. 
You don't know whether for a coach of a team, you don't know whether you're going to a tournament to play four games or seven games if you get in the playoffs. So to me, it puts pitchers at risk that all of a sudden your team is playing extra games. Pitchers are coming back on short rest. And these pitchers now when they're throwing, they're throwing knowing that there's college coaches around and all they care about is what the radar gun says. Just one more point, please. Um, see, for me, all this really points to, which is counterintuitive. I mean, when when they come to Princeton or when they go to the Angels or the Cubs or whatever, uh, you have to have learned how to win. Uh, and you're playing for the team and the attempt is to win the baseball game, whereas the showcase is to be best in show. I really, I've, I've noticed that uh, as far back as with the race, I think like right around 2010, 11, 12, something in that area, I, 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 I thought I um, perceived the shift in what was going on with these guys that were coming up because it was not just about winning. It was not just about playing for the race, the, the name on front of the shirt. It was pretty much, uh, they were so used to being best in show, all of a sudden that they show up and they're not the best player there. It kind of freaks them out. You know, sometimes they, they, uh, they don't know how to cope with that. I hadn't. I have one player in mind, I'm not going to mention his name, but it really did, it, it, uh, it undermined him in a sense. So that's the part about this. Again, all this stuff that nobody ever talks about with these, that's no longer important, which would be to be a team player, to win in this situation, like I'm saying, win for the local area, be proud about it, be proud of where you came from, whereas you become a mercenary at a young age, which again, it really dilutes, I think, everything about it. And it does detract from the building the team concept and playing to win Listen, you as a, as a coach and me as a coach, we should coach and manage to develop at that age. But the players should always play to win. They should never be. Uh, they should never think that they're being developed. That was always my premise when I ran the minor leagues for the Angels. I told that I used to say that to the coaches specifically. Uh, listen, you guys are here to develop them, but I want them to think they're here to win, and that that's the separator for me. And that's how you build a great organization. You know, Joe, you're so right. And I was very fortunate that I came up through the Yankee organization. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I was playing in the minor leagues with the Yankees, uh, the Yankees made sure that there were some older players at every yeah, level that's right. to make sure that their minor league teams won. And they felt like winning was a big part of development. And, and I think right now, starting at the youth age, uh, I, I think, and it, and it carries over up all the way to the minor leagues and then even to the big leagues is um, – it's all about skill development now. It's not mm -hmm. about right. learning how to win games. It's not about it's it's let's let's make your swing better. Let's teach you how to throw harder. There's never talk about situations. There's never talk about, you know, base running. There's never talk about anything other. I mean, I'll have my players, you know, and I'll talk to them about, all right, let's get you placed in a good summer league so you can go play. And they're like, well, I just want to go. I want to train all summer. I want my swing to get better. I said, well, don't you think there's something about – I said, I've seen a lot of really bad hitters that have great swings, and I've seen a lot of really good hitters <laughs> that have lousy swings. That's a great said, explanation. There's something to be said about going out and competing and right. knowing how to play in games, isn't there? And a lot of them, it's like they just want uh, – Coach, I, I need to make my swing better. I, I have to uh, you know, I have to improve all these – all my metrics. Yeah, it's fascinating stuff. And, and Joe, uh, you and Scott have a lot in common. And by the way, you would have loved Scott's swing. I mean, it was flat. It was quick. He let the ball travel. Great bat-to-ball skills. I mean, everything that you want to see from a hitter, Scott had it. Uh -huh. But also, like you, Joe, he was an outstanding high school quarterback back in the day when you played a sport when it was in its season. So I'm sure that's changed as well, Scott, where you have guys now uh, I mean, from a very young age, forget before high school, I'm mean, talking seven, eight, nine years old, not just uh, on one sport, but even on one position as well. Hey, we need to take a quick break when we come back. Um, I want to ask Scott, talk about familiarity and similarities with Joe, about catching, the state of catching in college and the big leagues. We'll do that when we get back. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. People don't always realize just how much their negative thoughts and experiences stick with them and weigh them down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mom does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. 
It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapist anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Book of Joe today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Book of Joe. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it and travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel, it's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbionica is your solution to great-tasting, all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or toxins. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbionica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbionica.com. C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more... Right now, you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. We are visiting with Scott Bradley, head baseball coach at Princeton University, former big leaguer. And Scott, I mentioned catching. Uh, I, I think we're asking more on the big league level of catchers than ever before when you you think about all the game prep that goes on. Um, and I know in the past with college catchers, it, it seemed like they weren't prepared for professional ball because coaches wouldn't allow them to think for the, on their own behind the plate. Give me an idea now um, where catching is at on the college level and preparing guys for professional baseball. It's a great point. And, you know, like I said, I'm 63 years old. Um, I can honestly say that I've never played in a baseball game uh, where I didn't call as a catcher, where I didn't call pitches. Uh, and it's amazing how many kids now, uh, in fact, I would say the majority of players now, when they get into professional baseball, they have probably never called a pitch on their own. All they do is look over to the dugout and pitching coaches um, are are calling in, in college, pitching coaches are calling virtually every every pitch, and there's not a whole lot of teaching that goes along with that. I can see if you have a young catcher, you know, and maybe you're trying to help him, but then finding situations during the game where you can say, okay, you run this inning, or, you know, all right, the, the, you, you, you see how we're working the, the, the game, all right, you take over the next inning, or you, you know, look over if you need help, but run the game if you want. Um Again, it's just it at the lower levels. I mean, I see youth league coaches now, kids looking over and youth league coaches calling pitches when kids basically throw, you know, fastballs and changeups. That's about it. So it's 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 really it's it's a shame. I feel like I'm probably as qualified. I would be as qualified as anybody to 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 call pitches at the college level. But it's still something where, you know, uh, we like to let our catchers learn. Uh, this past year is the first year I brought in a new pitching coach and he really helped, uh, you know, we had a young catcher and we sort of, the, the pitching coach would call a lot of pitches with the pitch comm system. But then there were plenty of times where we had an older veteran pitcher wanted to run his own. He ran his ball game with the catcher. Um, you know, you have to trust your players at some point uh, to go out and, uh, you know, to, to, to run ball games. Yeah, I'm surprised with as controlling as, you know, some of the, the, the things are in the in the big leagues that, you know, that they don't have people um, calling every single pitch at the major league level even now. Boy, Joe, that seems to be the one area where the analytics group really has not gotten involved in terms of actual pitch calling. 
Well, it's about the prep before the game, too. Um, uh, what I like, here's what, along with what Scott's talking about, I like, yes, I want analytical information before the game. I want to know exactly what's going on with their hitters, my pitcher versus their hitters and vice versa. I want to know that, but we're talking about pitching. So for me, yeah, sit down with your catcher, pitcher, starting pitcher that night, maybe all the pitchers in a group meeting, and you go over this team. Yes, absolutely, you go over this team hitter by hitter, so everybody understands. Uh, and again, they should be they should be nuggets. They should not be this uh, absolute uh, dissertation on how to get these guys. Just nuggets here that you can't remember all that stuff. You cannot. So for me, the catcher needs to do is studying. The starting pitcher needs to do is studying. And when it comes down to relief pitchers, they got two two pitches. Maybe what are they studying? I mean, they're going to go to their best stuff in the moment. Also, you got to know what not to do in a particular moment. That's it. But that's it. They have two pitches. A starting pitcher for me, the third time through the batting order. They don't. That's where you have to be able to pitch and maybe withhold something earlier in the game. All this stuff. Wow, it, it just drives me insane sometimes. But yes, pre-game meeting, pre-series meeting. I like. I like the ability to have a catcher look in during the game when he's a little bit uncertain and find something from the bench. That's what we did with the Cubs. I talk about Mike Borzell. He's been on our show. Borzell was so good in Chicago. Uh, the catcher was calling the game based on their meetings that they had before the game, but it gets hot sometimes. And sometimes you just don't know what to do. Just a quick peek in. Here comes a sign from Borzell to the catcher. Let's do this. I like that. It's it's no, it's tantamount to quarterbacks don't call their plays anymore. Middle linebackers have to find out what's defense supposed to be played. There's Everybody relies on everybody else, and you're not permitting people to – understand and learn on their own. I still believe that's the best way to do it. I, I like the idea of the preparation. Absolutely. I do that myself as a manager. But once the game is in progress, go ahead and do what you prepared yourself to do. Little nuggets during the game. Have a, have a method that you're being reminded about something. For me, it was the cheat sheet in my back pocket. For the catchers, it was Borzello in the dugout. But to constantly feed these guys, you're talking about Little League kids are like young kids getting signs from the bench. That's just mimicking what they see on television. That's nothing to do with anything. They have no idea what they're doing from the bench of the kid anyway. So, listen, I, this is a, obviously a sore subject for me. This is when you do not permit young players to become great because you're constantly spoon-feeding them and you're not permitting them to think on their own and making their own mistakes and then help with the correction process. To me, that's a better way. And, you know, Joe, as a, as a, as a catcher, you know you had a feel. You could yes. see as a catcher, you could see um, whether a hitter was really on a pitch. You could see what subtle adjustments that a hitter was making. And you know what? I've watched a lot of games from the bench, and I still don't think that you can see and, and you're aware of what the hitter is doing, like when you're behind the plate, receiving every pitch, watching what he's doing. And, you know, the, the data may say one thing, but you have a feel for what the pitcher's doing on that particular day. You know, maybe all of a sudden uh, his breaking ball is that much sharper. And even though, you know, it might say, you know, we need to throw a change up in a certain count. You just have such a good feel with the breaking ball that day that you're going to go with you, with the feel and what you see on that given day, as opposed to what the, the, the charts and data says. And sometimes the catchers can't do that because they're never given that opportunity in the first place to make up their own mind about anything. So you're asking yep. them to read situations that they've never even tried to read before because They've not been given permission. They've not been given permission to think on their own. And that's the mistake for me. Uh, the game itself, uh, when you get a team out there that's out there to play to win, you got level five guys, all they want to do is win. And they understand the nuance of the game. They've studied it. They, Like you're talking about, they see adjustments being made by the opposition. They counter it a little bit. Again, I, that's the stuff. But the, again, even, even right down to the cards in the back pocket about outfielders. I Listen, that's what I used to do back then. I would be at... 3.30 in the afternoon, I'd go in the dugout wherever I stood. And then I would have somebody stand out there at straight up in left field, straight up in center field, straight up in right field. And I would look at a sign behind wherever he was, and I knew that was straight up. And from there, I was able to, and if the, if the player was not in the right spot, I was able to just wave him over, flag him over a couple steps from the dugout because I had this uh, straight up already set up pregame. Furthermore, the, the player themselves are paying more attention this is just a thing out of your back pocket. We, we make it, we're spoon feeding so much. I don't think it's appropriate. I'd rather see guys do this on their own. I'd rather see guys pay attention. And like you're saying, sometimes the fastball is a little bit better today. Hitter's a little bit late. Right fielder, get over there on this right-handed hitter, especially with two strikes. Eh, uh, let people play the game. Teach them how to play the game. They'll teach them how to utilize um, pockets, uh, cards in their back pocket.
Amen to that, brother. I, I'm a big proponent of that. Listen, I understand why teams do that, but I, I want the pl- I don't want the cards. I don't want the cheat sheets on the field. I mean, that's like taking notes into the SAT test. There you go. You do all your prep work, and then you go in that room, and, and it's time to take that test and, and find out what you know about baseball and what you can do in real time in terms of reading what the pitcher has, the approach of the hitter. That, that should be a skill. Uh, and not, I, I just don't like the paint-by-numbers aspect of the game, which leads me, Scott, to the technique of catchers behind the plate in the big leagues today. Listen, I understand everything about pitch framing, and um, you know, I, I understand there is a lot of wiggle room with defensive metrics. I mean, an umpire can miss a pitch, and the catcher will get credit for, quote-unquote, framing the pitch. Um and I can tell you, I had a conversation with a major league catcher this year, the former major league catcher who's now a catching instructor. And he said his front office not only tells him that his catchers must be on one knee, even with a runner on third base, that if he even brings up the idea of doing something else, he will get fired. That's what he told me. Uh, he said, listen, I never caught that way, but I'm supposed to teach that way. And I can't even bring up the idea that we should prioritize the runner on third over trying to frame a low pitch, even in a tie game in the ninth inning. Uh, Scott, you've seen it. You've caught yourself. Uh, you know, give me your thoughts on the technique of catchers, especially with catchers down on one knee. Uh, you know what? I think uh, people spend too much time looking at breaking things down on on video so much. Um, I know as a, as a former catcher, the worst feeling in the world was having to run to the backstop to retrieve a, to retrieve a baseball. <laughs> you can be, I can remember being in minor league fields where there were a hundred people and you'd have to run back to the backstop, whether it's a wild pitch or a pass ball and just waiting for the guy to be, to be heckling you as you ran back to the, to the backstop. When I watch catchers now, they don't care. You know, it, it doesn't make any difference. If a ball gets to the backstop, it just, yeah, it's, that's no big deal. I'm, I'm doing my, you know, I'm doing my job. I'm trying to manipulate the strike zone or whatever else, but there's, you know, risk reward to this whole thing. And you see, you know, to me, 90 feet in certain situations is more important than whether the pitch is a, a ball or strike. And as you mentioned, I don't think Johnny Bench or Pudge Rodriguez or those guys I don't think they had a hard time receiving receiving strikes and keeping the low pitch in the in the strike zone. You know, you watch catchers, and if they had strong hands, you wanted to make sure that when the ball hit the glove, that the glove just never took it out of the zone. But to put these guys on one knee where I see so many situations where there's not even an attempt to block a ball, to keep it in front of you, and with runners on third base. I mean, I've seen over the last couple of years quite a few – you know, pass ball walk-offs. Um, and to me, there's risk reward to everything. I can see being able to do both. I can see, you know what, in certain situations or whatever, if, you know, being on a knee and things like that. But when there's a runner on third base or a runner on second um, with no outs, where if you give up 90 feet, you know, you know the the, the game's going to, you're going to have a tough time winning that ball game. To me, you have to do whatever possible to keep the ball in front of you. And I think that you're more athletic, not only on balls in the dirt, but when you're down on one knee, you see a lot of high fastballs that catchers can't get to either because they just can't react to it. Well, see, they're instructed not to care about that. See, that's the whole point. You get the blessing that if, if the ball gets by you, it's okay. It's okay because they think it's going to be uh, percentage-wise, you have more opportunity to catch a strike than the pitch that you're not going to be able to block. I think that's, that's what the, the logic's going to be. Uh, regarding that. So they're, they're instructed to not care if the ball gets by him. It was a uh, horrible, I, what you're talking about. I hated him. Like we used to take infield practice all the time. If a ball got by me on an outfield throw, just an infield practice, I wanted to kill myself. <laughs> I mean, you just, you just did not want to ever, like you said, go backwards. Uh, and when you're talking about uh, in the past, uh, good pitchers glare was enough. I mean, talking about receiving balls and strikes. If the, 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 the pitchers of the past, the outstanding pitchers of the past um, with their catchers, if you did not receive well, you're going to hear about it from you. You, know, you caught some very good pitchers. I, even though I didn't play in the big leagues, I caught a lot of good guys going up to the big leagues and they would let you know, you know, if, if the, you know, you're not presenting well, if they, you're missing some pitches for them. And the other part of it is talking to the umpire. I mean, just the relationship with the umpire. And at least another topic for me, I am, uh, I'm amazed that umpires are not more vocal about not pulling pitches, which really comes down to 
it's really pulling a pitch. The pitch that's a ball that they pull to become a strike. To me, if I'm an umpire, I'm saying, listen, brother, keep doing that. You're not getting anything. Because that's what it used to be like. If you if the umpire thought you were pulling stuff on him, framing, pulling, you're not getting anything, man. You're not going to get nothing. So there, there's all this stuff is interrelated in some way, but um, they don't care if they miss the pitch and it's it's a pass ball wild pitch. Uh, back in the day, uh, the pitcher a lot of times took care of the catcher being lazy behind the plate. No doubt. And one thing that one thing that I have noticed, I think for the better is, you know, I don't know whether they ever got the pitchers or the pitching coaches involved because the the late yeah. movement. I mean, I see pitchers they they give the sign and then as the pitcher is in the delivery, they are catchers were jumping all over the place to get down into mm-hmm. that one knee position. And I would think as a pitcher that would almost be distracting. I, I remember I had a chance to catch Tom Seaver um, when I was uh, in, in the White Sox organization, and he literally told me, "Set up in the middle of the plate, give me a low target." He goes, "I'm going to throw for your knees." and your shoulders. That's my strike zone. He goes, don't move, be still and quiet and don't jump around. I have noticed though, uh, more this year that I see catchers giving the sign, getting down onto one knee, giving a good target. And then the movements are more subtle. They're getting down. They're staying a little bit more stationary. Then they drop the glove to the ground to come on up. But I don't see as much just late, fast, quick movements, which was really prohibiting catchers from reacting to bad pitches. Well, what's going on right now is they're being instructed more to stay in the middle of the plate. Absolutely. They're, they're, they're asked to not be on the corners as much as we used to do. Like when you're catching Kyle Hendricks, you're going to be on corners, right? Uh, Tommy John, Jeff Zahn, all those dudes. They wanted you. They never wanted you on the plate, period. They wanted you off the plate, maybe a click on each side. That's what they wanted. But today with the velocity and just uh, pretty much – Less pitchability, more velocity, more more of this uh, kind of Neanderthal approach to throwing the ball as hard as you can. They just want, like you said, if I'm sitting low and and it's an elevated fastball, that might be the toughest pitch to get to when you're down there. And and, or the other one would be like sitting inside and the guy just yanks one outside. When they're throwing that hard, it's difficult to get to that particular point. But again, all interrelated. Um, It's an interesting conversation. I I, back to the last point would be uh, nobody on. Less than two strikes when he's appropriate for me. Uh, two strikes, runner on first base or any base, uh, regular catching stats. That's how I would go about it. I agree. Well, Scott, you mentioned catching Tom Seaver. What a thrill that must have been. Nine seasons in the big leagues, and we are not letting you get out of here without telling at least one Randy Johnson story. <laughs> and I also want to ask Scott about the joy of coaching. We'll do that when we get back. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbiotica is your solution to great tasting all natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or artificial nonsense. It's just pure goodness in every pouch. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15 percent off plus free shipping on your subscription order go to symbiotica.com that's c-y-m-b-i-o-t-i-k-a.com getting ready to take on spring make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools from hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more right now you can save 50 dollars on select battery tool sets real steel Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. 
Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Welcome back to the Book of Joe podcast. Our guest is Scott Bradley, head baseball coach at Princeton University. And Scott, doing this for 25 years, your track record speaks for itself. Seven Ivy League titles, the major leagues, both in the dugout, in front offices, and on the field is just jam-packed with players you and people you helped develop who came to Princeton as young men and left for careers in this game. We have three general managers right now here at the trading deadline who went to Princeton. Mike Hazen, Chris Young, Mike Chernoff. You have Mike Ford playing with the Seattle Mariners. Will Venable in the dugout with the Texas Rangers. And recently you had two of your players drafted this year by the San Francisco Giants. Um, it's, It's a lot of work being a college coach. Um, but Scott, you tell me in your words, why you keep doing it? Where are the best rewards for being a college baseball coach? You know, Tom, when I was getting towards the end of my, my, uh, my playing career and starting to figure out, I, I knew I was going to stay involved in athletics. It was just the way that we were raised. Um, you know, the way that we were brought up, um, as you know, my older brother, Bob is as highly acclaimed, uh, soccer coach as there is in the uh, you know, is in this country and what he's done around the world. Um, so as I was starting to think, I knew I wanted to get involved. I stayed in and I was a player coach uh, and a coach in the minor leagues for, for a year or so. Uh, they asked me to go uh, manage. Dick Balderson asked me to manage the next year. You know, and then I was starting my family. And I started thinking about what I wanted from quality of life. Um, I was at my brother was coaching soccer at Princeton at the time. Uh, I went to one of the, one of his games. Um, the athletic director came up to me and said that Tom O'Connell, the coach, was going to announce his retirement and asked if I would be interested. And, uh, of course, I immediately you know, said yes. Uh, I get to spend uh, at a place like Princeton. It's different coaching at Princeton as opposed to being at a, at a Power 5 school where you have the same pressures at those Power 5 schools as the major league managers do. They pay you to the point where you better win, you better produce, um, or else they're going to fire you. But at a school like Princeton, at a school like Lafayette, where, where Joe went, it's about uh, giving guys an amazing experience, helping them to develop in every area of their life. Uh, they have other things in their lives besides just baseball, and that's something that I just absolutely loved uh, about my job, that I talked to my players about life after baseball. I talked to my players about other interests, Um, and to me, it was just such a rewarding place to be. And yet if we had guys that wanted to develop and go into professional baseball, I wanted to make sure that we could, we would do that. And, you know, my very first recruit at Princeton was Chris Young. So, uh, pretty tough to, uh, to, to top that one with everything that, you know, that, that he has accomplished, uh, in, in his career, and then, you know, uh, to have the, the Will Venables and the, the Matt Bowmans, the David Hales, the Ross Ollendorfs. I think we've had eight or nine players get to the big leagues. And as you said, uh, three GMs right now. Um, I'm so proud of what Mike Hazen has accomplished this year after all the personal struggles that he went through, losing his wife, Nicole, raising, you know, having to raise the four boys, stepping away from baseball for a while and having the insight to basically realize that baseball now is becoming a game of having all around players again. I think it's great. And you look at what the diamondbacks are doing. They have speed, they have defense, they have a, a mix of baseball skills. It's not a gorilla ball. Let's just see how many guys can hit the ball out of the ballpark. So I'm so proud of all my guys, the guys who are doctors and lawyers, and even the guys who just had the calling to stay and want to teach and coach. So I have guys that played for me that are teaching and coaching. Um, it's just been an amazing place to be. Uh, Princeton is just, uh, we have so many amazing, amazing student athletes that are there for the right reasons. 
and I really wouldn't have trade places with anybody. Well, it was an amazing career that you did have yourself uh, in the big leagues to, to put nine years in. Third round pick of the New York Yankees back in 1981. It was actually the Yankees' second draft pick in that draft. Um, the guy drafted by the Yankees before you did okay, just not in baseball. It was a guy by the name of John Elway. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> it's one of my favorite trivia questions. I've won a lot of meals by trying to get people to uh, tell me uh, who the Yankees pick was before me on that given year. <laughs> and and if, if I got this right, I believe you caught Randy Johnson's first no-hitter. Now, Randy, I was just up in Cooperstown for the induction ceremonies. And by the way, congratulations to Fred McGriff and Scott Rowland. And if you haven't had a chance to catch both Hall of Fame induction speeches from those guys. You have to find it on YouTube or someplace. Uh, they both did an amazing, an amazing job. There is so much gratitude, lessons that anyone in any field can really take to heart, beginning especially with hard work. I mean, Fred McGriff waited through 10 times on the writer's ballot. Scott Rowland waited through six times on the writer's ballot. Uh, they're hard their hard work got them into Cooperstown. But Randy Johnson was up there. He actually had a photo exhibit at a local art museum in Cooperstown. And a bunch of the Hall of Famers took a trip over there on Saturday, the day before. Uh, and you know Randy well, Scott. And he, he was always interested in photography, even when he was playing. Um, it Give me a, a sense of catching Randy Johnson, because I always knew famously what kind of a a, a mean dude he was on days that he pitched. You didn't want to say hello to Randy Johnson on the day that he pitched, and you caught him. So give me some insight on on RJ. Well, first, uh, you know, I, I was very fortunate uh, between the Yankees, um, a little bit with the White Sox, and then the Mariners and the Reds, uh, and with the Hall of Fame ceremonies. It's amazing. I was going through a list, and just how many Hall of Fame players that I actually can count as as teammates is really an extraordinary an extraordinary number. Uh, just real quick, Fred McGriff and I were at Instructional League together our first two years in the Yankee organization. So wow. I saw the young 17-year-old Fred McGriff who swung and missed at virtually every pitch. And Scott, you know that Fred McGriff gave credit in his speech to Ed Napoleon. Oh, yeah. Uh, in the Yankee system and all the ground balls that Ed Napoleon hit to him. So I'm sure you can relate to that, that low level of minor league 17-year-old Fred McGriff putting the extra work in. And you could just see it happening. And then my youngest son, Scotty, went to Indiana, and he was fortunate enough to have Scott Rowland uh, interacting with the Indiana baseball team on a regular basis. So I saw both the speeches. Again, they were both terrific. Uh, but again, I'm really fortunate that I had a chance just to play with a huge list of, of Hall of Fame players. But when I went over to Seattle, um, you know, after we traded, you know, Mark Langston, that big trade, and we got, you know, Randy Johnson was actually – probably the, the third person in that trade. It was Brian Holman. Gene Harris was sort of the, the big name in that trade that everybody thought was going to be the superstar. And then Randy, because, you know, he was having a tough time throwing strikes and everything. And I can remember uh, his first game that he pitched was against the Brewers. I remember out at Canny Stadium warming him up before the game, and I was going to catch him, um, thinking, oh, this is going to be interesting because I saw the walk numbers, I saw the wild pitch numbers, and, you know, he really, it, the way we caught in, our, in a traditional stance, it was actually easy to catch somebody when they were wild high. The guys that were hard were the guys who were just beating you up, throwing the sinkers, bouncing the breaking balls. Randy didn't bounce much. So you just had to basically be able to react to pitches up. You could just see at that point, you know, like you mentioned, Randy on game days was mean and everything else. But Randy is a very sensitive person who you had to know how to treat. Um, I can remember early in his career with the Mariners, you know, some of the coaches would just say, you're big, you throw hard, just throw the ball, just throw the ball, aim in the middle, throw the ball down the middle. Well, Randy wanted to be a pitcher. So I would sit down with him and I would go over location with what we wanted to do with every hitter, even though I knew he wasn't capable of doing it, but you just had to go through that act because mentally he wanted to prepare like everybody else. He didn't want to be known as the big, hard-throwing guy who was just trying to throw the ball in the vicinity of home plate. Like I said, as an early pitcher, he couldn't, he couldn't do that. 
But every time he pitched, he went out. You could just see the reaction of hitters. Um, and you could just see that there were certain hitters that not only did you know that you were going to get them out, but you knew they weren't even going to put a ball in play. So one thing led to another. And then, you know, the, the, the game that he pitched against the Tigers, I've always felt that the one important skill a catcher has is you have to be able to remember. You always want to stay out of patterns. You don't want to throw the same pitch in the same count. The Tigers had a veteran team with the likes of Chet Lemon, um, you know, who uh, Trammell, you know, Whitaker took the day off that day. Um, but those were the guys you wanted to make sure. So as the game evolved, what happened a couple starts before that is we basically came to the realization that the breaking ball was Randy's command pitch. He would overthrow his fastball. He would end up three steps away from third base in like a whirly bird finish when he would throw his fastball. And every time you called his slider, he would be perfectly in balance. He wouldn't overthrow it. And so from there on, and that was probably the first game where anytime he fell behind hitters, we would throw a breaking ball, whether it's 2-0 count, 3-1 count, because he never overthrew it. And he did walk six in that game, but he never walked more than two in an inning. Uh, I don't know if he ever walked two in a row. And the last pitch of the game, uh, Mike Heath swung at probably the highest pitch. I, I, the, I think I had to jump to catch it that, uh, that, that Mike Heath uh, swung at. And then I can remember running to the mound, and all I could think about was, you know, Yogi jumping into uh, Don Larson's arms. And I started thinking, okay, well, Randy's too big. I can't jump that high. Um, but there was a great poster in Seattle of all of us with Randy. And it was like, we were the Lilliputians in, uh, Gulliver's travels. It was like, we were all hanging on Randy's waist and his arms were extended. And we all, I don't think we had a guy that came up above his, uh, the middle of his chest. So needless to say a great thrill. And I think catchers, uh, feel as much a part of no hitters as, as the pitchers do. And speaking of great thrills, it reminds me of something that Scott Rowland mentioned in his speech. I thought his greatest moment that he would identify would be a pennant-winning home run game seven, 2004 NLCS off Roger Clement. Instead, he told a beautiful story about by far his best moment was his first day in the big leagues in 1996. And his parents got to the game a little bit late at Veterans Stadium. So he's at third base at the vet, and he looks up, and he sees mom and dad walking into their seats behind home plate. And he said there was never any moment sweeter than that one, to see his parents there walking into Veterans Stadium for his Major League debut and how proud he was of them, and, of course, they of him. Um, Scott, I mean, maybe it's Randy's no-hitter, but is there a moment for you when you look back on your major league career and say, that was that was the apex, that was the peak? 100%. Again, growing up in, in New York, New Jersey, my dad um, you know, was a, a, a Marine in the Korean War, was at the Chosen Reservoir, uh, a self-made, self-made guy. He and, he and my mom knew each other from the time they were 12 or 13 years old. Uh, and growing up half an hour outside of Yankee Stadium, my dad would constantly come home early and say, all right, uh, the twins are coming in today. I want you guys to see Harmon Killebrew play. Um, he made sure that we had a chance to see all the great players uh, of that generation play in person. Took us to Cooperstown, made sure that taught us not only how to play the game, but how to appreciate the game and to have a passion for it. So at the, I had a great season in AAA. I think I was the International League MVP and Rookie of the Year. I got called up to the Yankees at the at the end of the year. That, to me, felt like a reward for having a really good minor league season. The next year, and again, you were there. I went to spring training, made the team out of spring training, uh, opening day in Yankee Stadium, being introduced as a member of the New York Yankees. Um, it was the day Mickey Mantle was allowed back into baseball after he and Willie Mays had been banned for being part of uh, working for the casinos. Um, and they were allowed back in, into, into baseball. We had a great dinner the night before. Um, Roger Maris and Mickey were there together. And I can just remember, just like Scott Rowland did, looking into the stands at Yankee Stadium, seeing family and friends, and knowing that I made the Yankees as a, and, and it was opening day, New York Yankees. I, you know, I, I, I believe we won the game. I think it was a game that Ken Griffey Sr. made that, Amazing catch up in the, uh, uh, like Junior did years later. Down the left field line, yeah. But just being a member of the New York Yankees, knowing that I had 
made an opening day roster for the New York Yankees basically was, I don't think anything gets better than that. Well, that is so cool. I mean, as you can hear, Joe, um, just he, Scott not only is a, a great college coach, but we go way back and not just covering Scott when he got to the big leagues, but we played actually against each other in American Legion ball. We played with each other in, in college summer league. Um, and, and I can honestly say, not just because I've known Scott for a long time, that it, the best attribute or compliment you can give a college coach is when you can tell someone you'd want your son or daughter, if it's another sport, to play for that person. And, and Scott is that kind of person. You know, Joe, Tom and I, like he said, we go way back. And I don't know if Tom's ever shared with or not, but his dad was a legendary football coach in, uh, in our area. So the Verducci name was something that we always bantered around our house. That's for sure. I actually saw a photograph of Tom split out wide left at Hinchliffe Stadium, Patterson, New Jersey. Look, he looked like he looked like he meant business. I really enjoyed that particular <laughs> photograph. I'd love to know what occurred after the ball was snapped. I'm sure it was a run. <laughs> Three yards and a cloud of dust. Dive. It was 32 left. Just a dive. I was nothing but a diversion as a wide out. Except in the state championship game against Bergen Catholic. There but you go. We'll stay, save there that for another day. Well, Scott, we have go. all our guests play a game with us. And um, it's very easy. We call it a reading from the book of Joe. And we believe that you can crack open any page of our book. You're going to find something interesting. So we have our guests pick a number, any number between 1 and 368. And we will have a little reading from the book of Joe. All right. So it's your turn to hit. Well, uh, my number with the Yankees was 34. So let's go with 34. Number 34. Now, was that given to you by Pete Sheehy, or did you actually ask for it? Well, the first year when I was up there at the end of the season, I, I think I had a, uh, a lineman's number uh, <laughs> all through spring training. And then uh, I think Pete Sheehy, and again, you talk about stories. When I, I was with the Yankees at such an amazing time that you actually, not only just players, but to sit and listen to Pete Sheehy tell his stories of how he started with the Yankees, uh, just amazing. But yes, Pete Sheehy is responsible for... Uh, giving me that number. Pete Sheehy. Oh, my goodness. He was there when Babe Ruth was there. No joke. And if you were in that Yankee clubhouse, and Scott, I can still see it, that wooden picnic table in the middle of the clubhouse, and you'd have Pete Sheehy sitting there telling stories. I mean, my goodness, what a treat. Um, okay, page 34 of the Book of Joe. Joe, we're going back to Moose Steubing. I, uh, <laughs> I love this story. Uh, <laughs> you're laughing already. This is uh, your class A manager, right? He's playing cribbage with Chuck Estrada, who's the Angels minor league pitching coordinator. Joe's walking in there because he's been called into the manager's office, Scott, mm. and he's hitting the ball really well. My boy. Joe says in the book, things are starting to come together. <laughs> I'm hitting and catching really well. So I'm like, damn, this is cool. Mm -hmm. The manager yes. wants to see me in his office. I wasn't doing anything wrong. I was really pleased to go in there. Mm -hmm. What's up, Moose? Madden says, hey, you're pretty tight with Dickie Thon, aren't you? Uh, yeah, good kid. You take care of that boy because he's going to play in the big leagues someday. I want you to keep your eye on him. When you go out at night, make sure you're with him. Make sure he gets home at a good time. Take care of him. <laughs> He will be in a big league shortstop one of these days. That's it. That's it. Madden walked out shaking his head. Nothing about me. Crickets about me. Not a word. Moose and I, we had a good relationship. I don't want to say love, hate, but you got to be freaking kidding me. <laughs> I love Richard. That was not the point, but damn it. Moose, give me something. Just give me a crumb to hold on to. Not even... Hey, nice going. You're catching the ball well. Nice double in the gap last night. Nothing like that. Nothing. Crickets. So that's what I got out of my manager. <laughs> I love that story. All, that's all true. And I, as, you're, as you started, I could just see myself walking in that small little Johnny O'Donnell Stadium um, manager's office. I was. I was like, I was playing really good. I thought, here we go. Something's good's happening. And Dickie was my roommate, Richard Thon. I still stay in touch with Richard. Richard texts me often. And he was really good. He was like 17 or 18 at that time. Uh, really nice player. Wonderful. 
but that was it. I get this. You take you take cares of this kids because he's you know he with this Brooklyn stuff, and he gave it to me, and I was I don't want to say I was devastated. I was like, can I say pissed? I was a little bit upset, you know. Come on, Moose, throw me a crumb. But he was right. Uh, Richard was the player. I was not. And Dickie and I hung, hung out that year and the next year also in um, Salinas a bit. And like I said, we still stay in touch to this day. I know his family, his wife, Saul, everything. But uh, that's the way those guys were, those managers. Uh, they they were so straightforward and tough. And uh, if you cannot deal with it, you would crumble. You would absolutely crumble. I was fortunately had the same kind of uh, football coaches back here in <laughs> Hazleton Growing up, man, you wouldn't get you wouldn't get nothing, brother. You'd get nothing from them. So, uh, again, funny story. Looking back at it, tough moment, uh, but those are the kind of things that form you and permit you to get um, through some disappointments. Joe, I think we have similar stories. And that a real quick one is: I was playing my first year in Oneonta in the New York Penn League. Mm-hmm. We had a manager named Art Masmanian, and oh, I yeah. felt like I had a really good year. And at the end of the year, he looked at me, he says, you know, Scott, he goes, you're going to be a great coach or manager someday. <laughs> oh, I'm like, 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 how about, like, can I play first before I do that? I had the same thing happen to me in, in, uh, in uh, Visaya, but at least you got, you got to the big leagues. You had nine nights. Yeah. I was looking up your numbers. I think I would have been you. Uh, you look, we look very similar, familiar, uh, but I had the same thing happen to me in Visalia after a really good night, dude, come, I mean, Lloyd Christopher, one of the best scouts I think that has ever lived. Lloyd walks up to me and says, what are you going to stop playing and start coaching? Come on, <laughs> shut up. <laughs> oh, Scott, this oh, has man. just been tremendous. It's It's been such a pleasure. We thank you. We know you're busy these days and you're not hanging out at the Jersey Shore. So uh, thanks so much again and, and best of luck to you and the Princeton program. That's my pleasure, guys. Always, always, uh, always enjoyable to be able to talk baseball with you fellows. So anytime you need me, you know where to find me. Great to visit, Scott. Continued success. I think it's awesome, babe. All right. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Well, Joe, that was as much fun as I, as I thought it would be for someone like Scott, what he does. He's a great guy to begin with, but uh, so well accomplished between a major league career and 25 years coaching baseball at Princeton. Uh, boy, you can see what an impressive guy and coach he is. Yeah, he's in the trenches, man. I mean, uh, being a college baseball coach, he gets to be a scout, a coach, a manager, an instructor. He gets to be everything running that particular program and is uh, being in touch with what's going on youth-wise and how guys get to college, which is the same way they get to professional baseball. It was interesting to hear. You know, I've not done that for a while. It was a little bit different back then as it is today. Uh, so it was great catching up on all that stuff. He gave me um, a lot of good um, information and insight regarding what is going on, and it's very helpful moving forward. He speaks so well. Um, I can see where uh, he he just he, – he just – became part of the fabric there at Princeton. He's he just, you could just see how much he loves it and, and how good he is at it. It's outstanding. And I resisted bringing up the fact that we played against each other in the New Jersey state American Legion championship, okay, that's okay. right? The winner was going on to the national world series for the American Legion. Uh, we played, we had to get the game in because the championship, uh, the national championship was starting like in the next couple of days, it poured the whole night. We actually did the bald, the Baldi Maselli trick there where we put the field infield on fire. It's the yep. first time I saw it, Joe, mm-hmm. to get the game in. And Scott Bradley hit a home run in that game, which I swear to this day didn't go over the fence. The lights weren't <laughs> great. The ball goes out to right field. You only have two umpires working the game. I swore it bounced over the chain link fence. It was ruled a home run. We lost the game. He goes on to the World Series. Chain link fence <laughs> makes it really difficult too, man. When you you, get, you really can't tell if it's before or after the fence. That's beautiful. Yeah. Well, Joe, it's been a pleasure chatting, and I'm sure you enjoyed it as a former quarterback and catcher yourself, just like Scott. So maybe you've got something appropriate to take us out here. I do. Uh, Mr. Einstein attended, uh, was professor there at Princeton, I believe, back in the day, right? Oh, nice. Yes. And it's really dovetails into one of my theories. And of course, uh, I'm not comparing myself to Mr. Einstein, but if you can't explain it simply, you don't understand it well enough. Uh, I love that. Um, Everybody wants convoluted answers to questions and problems. And it's really like Occam's razor. Probably the most simple answer is the accurate one. So if you can't explain it simply, you don't understand it well enough. Uh, I love that. Everybody wants to complicate things. I'm all about reduce, reduce, reduce. 
and Mr. Einstein had been there years ago, and I think that's pretty darn cool. Do simple better. That's it, baby. Good advice I heard somewhere. Yes, sir. It works. It works. (laughs) Awesome. Keep it up, man. It's a lot of fun. We'll see you next time. All right, brother. Have a great week. The Book of Joe podcast is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. Thank you for traveling with Amex Platinum. To your right, you'll see Oceanside Relaxation at a fine hotel and resort property. When booked through Amex Travel, you can enjoy complimentary breakfast for 2 and 4 p.m. late checkout. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at AmericanExpress.com slash with Amex. When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? It's estimated over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. To save, visit HealthLock.com today. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more... Right now, you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details.